Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is June the 13th, 2020. We are preparing for Sunday morning, tomorrow morning, since today is Saturday. We are preparing for Sunday morning, which will be the first Sunday after Trinity. And we here at Resurrection are in the one-year lectionary. So if you are at a church that's doing the three-year lectionary, well, pretty sure those are different readings. So I don't know how much help this is going to be for you, but you're more than welcome to listen anyways. Hopefully we'll get into some good things here. Um, And there's so much craziness going on in the world right now um, with politics and um, uh, protests, riots, looting, uh, all kinds of stuff, commentary up the wazoo. And what better thing to do to get away from all these things is to go to church and also probably listen to this and to get your mind off of these things, not necessarily completely, but to also really just reshape your thinking on it to be more um, in thinking of what Christians should be thinking of with things like this. Since we are going to be tackling a text that has to do with um, what some people might put in the realm of social justice, but we're, we're going to look and see that, okay? Before we, be, before we begin today, let's begin with a word of prayer, which will be the collect for tomorrow morning. So let us pray. O God, the strength of all who trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers. And because through the weakness of our mortal nature, we can do no good thing, grant us your grace to keep your commandments that we may please you both in both will and deed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So today we are looking at some texts that have have some things to do with each other. Um, But before we begin looking at the texts, it bears telling y'all that um, this is the time of the church year where we're we're in the second half of the church year now. That if you're going to divide the church year up at all, there's the festival part, which is what we just came out of, um, that begins with Advent and goes on through uh, to Trinity. And, you know, that's the busiest time of the church year, uh, Advent leading to Christmas, Christmas leading into pre-Lent, Lent, uh, pre-Lent leading into Lent, Lent leading into Easter, Easter leading into Pentecost, and then Trinity. There's just a lot there, right? That's, that's the season where we have all these midweek services. And now, and when we're in Trinity, it's the summertime. Uh, for those in the three-year lectionary, they have their um, time after Pentecost. Uh, but this is the time where the readings are not as—they um, don't seem to be as cohesive, or they don't seem to have much to do with each other on the surface. But we'll take a look at see what we are— um, dealing with this coming Sunday, or this Sunday, which is tomorrow. Um, and we, in the past couple Sundays, we have gotten rid of, or at least put on the sidelines, the thinking that all of the readings circle or um, are, grow out of what the gospel is trying to say for that, that Sunday, the gospel reading, I should clarify. But... Um, we put that on the sidelines and and focused on it being on the day, like the day of Pentecost. So that's the day we focus on uh, the actual event of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon the uh, the apostles um, and speaking in tongues and things like that. And then uh, we get to Trinity, and you know we celebrate and we focus on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, um, and the readings support that. But it's not necessarily focusing on the gospel text. But today, this gospel, we're going back to that theme of looking at what the gospel text is, what the gospel text has to say, and how the other readings support that gospel text. So, our gospel text for this first Sunday after Trinity is from Luke chapter 16. And I'll just read that out for y'all. It is the, um, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Okay. 
Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, when the dog, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. So we see here um, one of those texts that we get to uh, at various times in the church year, where we hear such a hard story. We hear a, a hard narrative or a hard teaching, something that is not necessarily easy to digest. And we think to ourselves, this is the gospel of the Lord? <laughs> you know, we, we hear these things. Um, uh, we don't like to hear about uh, people in torment, and we, in our fallen understanding, and that's what we got to keep in mind here, in our fallen understanding, our fallen and sinful reason, we look at a story like this and we say to ourselves, how is it that Abraham and, you know, Lazarus, who, who is not being tormented, you know, how is it that they can look upon this, this rich man, see him languishing, see him in torment, in hell, literally, that's where he is. Um, how can they look at him and still be at peace? That just doesn't seem right, right? We, we, we take this and we, we um, might be tempted to spin it in such a way to where we say, well, you know, to where it's more palatable. Um, <clears throat> and one of the ways we do this, or some people do this, is that there's some debate. It's not a fierce debate, but there's some debate, and you're open. It doesn't, you know. I don't think it really, it really um, brings into question your orthodoxy or how, um, or whether or not you're a believer if you think one way or the other. But some people see this as a parable. Some people see this as an actual story, and the reason why, uh, real quickly, is because in parables. Uh, Jesus is usually saying, you know, um, the kingdom of God is like, or uh, the kingdom of the heavens is like this, and is 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 like a certain um, vineyard or a vineyard owner or something like that. Um, and here, there's no preface to that. Um, and also, whenever there's a parable told, there is uh, no one really has names. People are just given descriptions like a Samaritan or a man going on his way from here to there or a father or a son. Here, though, we see a rich man who doesn't have a name, but then we see Lazarus and we see this name Lazarus. Um, and we'll get to a little bit about what that means and what it's talking about and possibly signaling to. But 
those are some indications that this might not be a parable, that it might actually be a true story that people might have known a poor man named Lazarus who sat at the gate of a rich man's house and know that both of them died about the same time. And um, now Jesus, because of his you know, divine... Um, be, because he is divine, knows the what happened behind the scenes as far as um, in uh, Sheol and Gehenna, right, or Hades, as as, as the Greek likes to say here. Um, so, this either one. If you think that's a parable, sure. If you think that it's a real story, okay. Um, but that's how we kind of try to um, we try to take this not so literally, or at least some people take it not so literally, because they're so uncomfortable with just that one as. Well, there's there's that one aspect, and there's other aspects we're going to get into here. How can uh, Abraham be so callous to this man who's languishing, who's who's uh, in torment in hell in Hades? You know, that's that's a, another translation for the place of the dead. It's uh, possibly turned into Gehenna, uh, which was the place where um, um, the unbelievers would go, or the people who were going to be in eternal torment. Um, and then Sheol is the place of the dead, also as well. So so there's 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 a lot here. We're not going to go into all the specifics, but we'll, I will say this, that um, there's a dichotomy here. There's, there's a, uh, maybe that's not the right word. Um, there's a stark contrast here between the rich man and Lazarus. And in some ways, it's kind of over the top, right? Uh, the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And this is understood to be, you know, the sumptuous feasts were really only supposed to be reserved for big parties like, um, uh, like a wedding or something like that. Um, and, uh, and yet, it's told that this rich man has these big banquet feasts every day. He lives in excess, right? Uh, and then at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Uh, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now we're going to take a look at that for just a minute here. Um, these contrasts of the rich man, he's not really described anything more than just how uh, really much of a glutton he was, how much of a, uh, uh, a lush in some ways he was. He feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now, when we look at Lazarus, we, um, let me see here. We see that um, we may make the connection between the Lazarus that uh, we know from John's gospel that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? I'm not. I don't think this is the same Lazarus. There's not. There's not any real strong comparison there. There's nothing in John's gospel that even indicated that Lazarus was a poor beggar. Um, and died in the way that he did, right? Um, but this could be another, this is probably another Lazarus. But Lazarus, the name Lazarus means um, one whom God helps, right? So that's an indicator right there that this, this name actually means something here. Um, and we see that there was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, we shouldn't necessarily take that to mean that the dogs were the dogs that belonged to the rich man, right? Uh, in fact, in the ancient world, the you know dogs weren't seen as pets in the same way that we see them. Um, it's kind of interesting because uh, we might think there's there's two 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 different ways that commentators go on the dogs licking the sores of Lazarus and one is that uh, the dogs are licking the sores of Lazarus to you know just show even just how much more helpless he is that he can't even help he can't even push the dogs away he's so helpless right um, and I don't know about you but that is even bolstered by, you know, this this understanding of how helpless a beggar Lazarus was, um, is bolstered by the um, 
the interaction between Jesus and the, uh, I think it's the Canaanite woman, or it's the Syrophoenician, oh, I feel bad, I don't really know off the top of my head, but the, either, either the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman where uh, she comes and asks Jesus to uh, heal her daughter, and Jesus basically calls her a dog and says, you know, is it, is it right for the dog to eat the bread from the children's table? And the woman says, um, no, no, Lord, but um, even the dogs uh, are able to get the crumbs that fall from its master's table. So there's this understanding that, you know, I think, at least in my mind, there's this connection here where uh, the um, poor man Lazarus desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Like he's not even on the level of a dog at this point. That that's so he's so low he would like to go dumpster diving in the man's gar in the, the the rich man's garbage because you know there's there's stuff that falls from his table that that's thrown away that he would love to have but he can't and he doesn't and then that bolsters up the idea that the dogs lick the the sores of Lazarus as a, just to show just how much more humiliating a state he's in. Right, that he can't even push the dogs away to make them stop licking at his sores. But then there's the other side of it, that these dogs, um, which are not seen as nice little pets as we would like to see today, they're not necessarily designated as unclean animals like a pig or something like that would be. I mean, if you ate a dog in the Old Testament um, dietary laws, that would be unclean. I hope you don't do that. But um, they're not the same as we would see them today as these nice, furry, man's best friend kind of thing. They're, they're just, um, in fact, the Gentiles are likened to dogs, right? That's what I meant to say with, you know, the Canaanite or the Seraphonician woman. I can't, I feel bad, I can't remember which one, but they're likened to dogs. Yet even then, if you're going to say that, you know, this could be an, um, metaphor for like the Gentiles, that, that, that even the lowly creature, at the very least if you're seeing it that way, has more mercy on Lazarus than the rich man does, right? That to lick the sores means, you know, to kind of help them heal a bit. Um, but then we see here that, you know, there's, there's a lot more there about Lazarus and just the pitiful state that he is, the passive state that he occupies, um, as opposed to the rich man who is clothed in fine fine linen and feasts sumptuously every day, right? Um, that he's actively engaged in this uh, gluttony, in this overindulgence, in this trust in his material wealth. Whereas Lazarus, the one who is named, um, uh, the one whose name means uh, one whom God helps, his whole existence is nothing but relying on God's grace because everything in his life, in man's eyes, is pitiful. Um, and this is supposed to be seen, um, you know, it, there's strong emphasis here where um, Jesus has called the Pharisees and other parts of Luke's gospel before this lovers of money, right? So this is clearly a... Uh, attack on Pharisees, um, on the people, the religious people at the time. Now, bear with me here. I'm not saying that all religious people are Pharisees, like some might do, uh, but there are, uh, you know, that is the trap that we can fall into is being religious people who only imbibe on pure religion and there's nothing else there uh, that actually shows that we actually believe what we believe. Uh, we believe what we say we, we say we believe. Anyways, so there's this contrast here where the rich man is clearly supposed to uh, rep represent a Pharisee and Lazarus is supposed to represent the, uh, the poor sinners that Jesus uh, was preaching to and ministering to right? But then we see here in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, literally Abraham's bosom. He was like right next to him, right? Uh, the rich man, but then there's this, you know, see this nice, beautiful picture painted in words, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, right? There's this stark contrast there. It's this great reversal where all of a sudden you see this this rich man 
who had, you know, had everything in life now is just buried. He's just buried. It doesn't even mention whether or not he had a nice funeral, just that he's committed to the ground. He's just, he's there. He's, he's buried. Very next verse. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. We see this great reversal, right? That Lazarus, who is this poor, miserable person, totally passive in everything, the world is 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 cruel to him. Uh, he now is, in God's eyes, blessed, right? Or we see that he's been blessed this whole time. Um, and this is the great reversal, uh, which Luke really em- emphasizes all throughout his gospel. Um, and we see this interesting uh, thing here, and we're going on, on and on and on about the gospel text, but it's, it's, it's worth it here, uh, getting into these things. And we'll touch on the other parts here in just a second, the other readings, I should say. So we see here that the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So there's this finality attached here, which we don't like to talk about, right? There's this finality in death that uh, there is a judgment done, a judgment pronounced in death for those who are in faith uh, and for those who disbelieve or who don't believe at all, uh, which I repeat myself. Um, so there's this uh, great reversal and then there is this great divide. Um, and we can be tempted to take this and not really pay too much attention to it, to our peril, I think, where we look at this and we say, well, that's not very nice. I don't know. Um, we, we can be guilty in, in trying to make some exceptions for certain people because we like them, right? Um, you know, my, you, we, we can say, my friend is just, he's just such a good person, how could God not like him? I mean, I like him, so obviously God likes him, uh, as opposed to understanding, uh, even though they might have said straight out, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that I need to go to church to be saved. I don't I don't believe that I need to hear God's word in order to really understand what it means to be a Christian, or I don't really need to X, Y, Z as far as rejecting God's salvation through Christ um, or anything like that. And yet we say, oh, but they're just so funny. They're just so nice. They do good things for other people. How could God not like them? How could God not, you know, welcome them into his kingdom? I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly an uncomfortable thing. It's not comfortable to be able to talk about the reversals that happen and how God definitely casts judgment and how that judgment is meted out for the good of all people. Um, you, you know, if God led everybody into heaven, even if they cursed him and never believed and, and actively rejected his salvation, God would not be a just God, right? Um, and he certainly wouldn't necessarily be a loving God either if he let everybody in regardless of whether they accepted or, you know, received or rejected his, his salvation through Christ. So, and also here, we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of saying, uh, you know, like I said before, this could be taken as some sort of social justice idea where the rich are, uh, where the rich are evil and the poor are automatically virtuous and noble, right? We shouldn't fall into that trap either because we see here, uh, verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he has comforted here, and you are in anguish. The point here is not, okay, the point here is not that um, the rich man received his blessings on earth in his life, 
And now because he received those riches and blessings, now he is being tormented. And in like manner, because Lazarus was not treated well and he was despised or looked down upon and a beggar that had to barely get by, uh, now he in heaven, he will be rewarded for his virtue of poverty. It's, it's, it's not what we should take away from this. What we should take away from this is how the rich man lived his life, that God had blessed him in material ways, and yet he cared more about the world. He cared more about what um, the world thought because he would have these feasts, these sumptuous feasts. He clothed himself in purple and fine linen, and he did all these things. We can rightfully, I think, assume and interpret this to mean that he did all these things so that others would look to him and say, wow, God has really blessed him tremendously. Um, and that was something that Jesus did a lot. He, he would combat the uh, notions of the time that blessings in material wealth were blessings from God. But they were not the thing, they were such an easy snare for us and our fallen flesh to grab onto and trust in and idolize, right? He's trying to show here that the rich man takes his wealth and he puts it on a pedestal. He's even worse than the rich fool in, in some ways. He's even worse than the rich fool who stores away his grain and builds, builds a bigger barn to store more grain and this, that, and the other. And then his soul is taken from him that very night and said, you know, who are you storing this up for? You know, you've, you've basically, um, you're storing it up and, and, and you're trusting in this above you know, God's provisions for you. So in some ways, the rich man is even worse because he's just feasting sumptuously and he has a beggar out in his, out by his front gate and doesn't do anything about it. He does not love his brother, right? Um, and we can see that it's kind of interesting that the rich man knows Lazarus's name. He knows his name. He knows his name, which makes it even worse because he obviously doesn't care about Lazarus. He never cared about Lazarus because if he did care about Lazarus, he would have, I don't know, helped him, <laughs> shown love in some way to him. Um, and we see here that um, the rich man in anguish in hell, Hades, hell really, uh, he's in anguish and he's speaking to Abraham and saying, you know, um, send send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers so that, so that he may warn them lest they also come come into this place of torment. Now, what he's saying there <laughs> and this is where we really need to pay attention. What he's saying there is that you know, uh he knows who Abraham is. He's no he doesn't it's it's not that he's never heard of God. It's not that he's never heard of who Abraham is that he knows he recognizes him and says Father Abraham, right? He's clearly uh, a descendant of Abraham by the flesh. Uh, he's Jewish, obviously. Um and he's calling out and he says, you know, send him to my send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Meaning that because you didn't send someone from the dead, because you didn't give me a sign that was good enough for me to believe, that's why I'm now in anguish, right? No doubt this guy was probably in the synagogue hearing the word of God, but it wasn't good enough. He wanted a sign. And that is very... Uh, very like the Pharisees who kept demanding signs from Jesus. And he kept saying, you know, um, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but they will only receive the sign of Jonah, which is, you know, that he will spend three days in the belly of the earth and, and on the third day rise from the dead, right? That sort of idea. Um, so he's literally saying, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers. And, you know, even though they have the word of God, they won't believe just like I didn't believe because I didn't have a sign from God that was, you know, as strong as a man raising from the dead. And, and, and Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Right. And we heard a couple weeks ago that Jesus has said, um, 
that uh, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all testify to him, right? He and what he does in saving the world by shedding his blood, uh, by pouring out his blood upon all people so that they would be saved. Um, and <laughs> this is Abraham talking here, right? Abraham is is the father of the of all the faithful. He is a prophet, and yet this man, in his unbelief, is just so staunch and stubborn that when he hears Abraham say, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, right? He's arguing with Abraham, the father of the faith, the one to whom he believed and it was counted to him as righteous. So, so that's, that's, that's what we're going to look at here in a minute. But that just... It's, it's interesting because then, then in his indignation against Abraham saying, no, 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 listen to me because I know what's right. Obviously, even though I'm suffering here in hell, I know what's right. You don't know what's right, Abraham. Listen to me and do, do, because the, do what I say because obviously that's what's going to make all the difference, even though he's suffering in hell. Um, and this is all sounding very harsh, but we got to get through this uh, to understand it this way because he says... Abraham says to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, that is surely uh, talking about, um, I mean, it's talking about either Lazarus and or Jesus, right? That nobody disputed uh, Jesus rising from the dead. They just wanted to silence the apostles uh, and all the believers who would uh, purport and and give the report and the good news of Christ ri- uh, rising from from the dead. Right, um, the, it's it's not that the Pharisees didn't believe that he rose from the dead. They knew. They just they didn't care, and that's a lot of what's going on here. And the reason I think this is so hard for us to understand. I know we're going way over time, but that's that's okay. This is very important to go through. That. Um, we, as the religious people, those who go to church regularly, I'm speaking for us, as, you know, being a pastor, for sure, you know, it's my job. Um, there are many times where I would like to have God work in miracles in very overt and specific ways, right? That there are times where I myself find myself saying, you know, well, I know that it says the word of God, you know, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But come on, can you just help me out and just work a little miracle here? I'm trying to, I'm trying to advance the kingdom of God here. I'm trying to show people, you know, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Just, just help me out here by giving me, giving me a sign to show these folks. So there are times where we can even find ourselves wishing that God would work in different ways, but really he works in this way through his word. And we see here that Abraham says, you know, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That the whole of God's law and gospel is in, you know, Moses and the prophets who proclaim and, uh, um, prepare us to understand who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah, right? That we should listen to them and we should listen to Christ and we should listen to all God's word because that is what the Holy Spirit works through in order to bring us to salvation, right? Not through miracles, not through signs, but through the word of God, preached and heard and believed, right? That's how God works. And we, it's hard to trust that, especially people in church. It's hard to trust that to say, well, um, I know that God works through his word proclaimed and the sacraments administered, but we got to do something else. It's obviously not working, right? It's, it's obviously not doing, that's, it's, it's not enough. We got to add some program. We got to add, um, we got to add some, some sort of, uh, um, <laughs> we got to add some sort of, um, meal, some sort of, uh, um, 
thing where we have small groups and don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not knocking anything that churches do as far as small groups meals or whatever those are clear opportunities to um open your church up and uh, bring people in in a way that's probably not as intimidating as coming to church on Sunday. But really, if you really want to make a big difference in people's lives and you really want them to know what your church is all about, invite them to church on Sunday or Saturday or Friday, whenever y'all meet for regular worship. Invite them to church because that is what being a Christian should be all about. And that is the only thing that is going to actually, uh, that God is going to work through uh, specifically. I mean, you can share God's word with people one-on-one, friendships and things like that. That's always good, always good to do. On top of that, though, if you're not inviting them to church, you're not really inviting them to become a part of the uh, the body of Christ, the community, the communion of saints, and um, all these things that we engage in as Christians in church. So um, this is kind of a warning for us, this story, this parable, however you want to see it. This is a warning for us as those who regularly attend church that we need to um, reach out to uh, our brothers and sisters or our, reach out to our neighbors and say, come and see. Come and see how Christ is preached here. Come and see the good news that is for you, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And trust, trust that God's word is powerful enough to do the work that God sets out to do, right? That the Holy Spirit works through these things and that we don't necessarily need to add anything to it. In fact, you know what? We shouldn't add to it. Um, to add to it would be kind of kind of a mistake to say, you know, well, we're going to bring them in with uh, some sort of gimmick or some sort of giveaway or some sort of thing to get them through the doors, and we'll do kind of like a bait and switch. No, it's probably not the best idea. The best idea is to have them come and hear the word of God, because that is the way that God has promised to work. That is the way that God has um, said that he will work, and we have to trust him in that, right? Let's not be like the rich man who says, no, 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 yeah, okay, fine, the the word of God is great and all, but uh, we need some miracles, we need some signs, we need some speaking in tongues, we need some healings, we need some whatever, not allowing the, or not just, not, let's not get in the way of God's word. Let's not hinder the work of God uh, by trying to add or take away something from God's word just because it's either uncomfortable or because uh, we're not sure it's going to be well received. Because that's another thing about this gospel text, which is pretty much all we're going to be talking about today, I guess, (laughs) is that the rich man cares so much about what the world thinks. And I think this is very pertinent for today as well. There are a lot of people who care more about what the world thinks, how they're viewed by the world, whereas we see that Lazarus, he receives all these bad things. And in a certain way, believers, you know, those who are in Christ are like Lazarus. We are beggars. We know that we can't receive anything good apart from God's gracious will. And even though we receive horrible things in this world, even though we face suffering and persecution in some way, shape, or form, we know that just like Lazarus, we as Christians know that God helps us and that we ought to be passive in our salvation by saying we receive only good things from God and God is the only one who can give us good things regardless of what the world says, regardless of how we're seen in the world as poor, miserable beggars. Yeah, we want to go to church because we know that God is the one who sustains our life, that we go and we remember our baptism and we receive the body and blood of Christ and we do all these things or we receive all these things. Let me clarify that. We receive all these things because we know that God only wants the good for us and he's the only one who can grant it, right? That we shouldn't be worried about what the world thinks. We shouldn't be worried about um, how the world treats us, but we should be always running back to the understanding that 
God is the one who grants us refuge, and he is the one who grants us peace and grace and mercy because the world cannot promise these things. The world wants to, or they might make you think that they will if you appease their will, you know, but God is the one, the only one, who can grant pure and lasting peace. Okay. We're about 40 minutes in, (laughs) so let's quickly look at these Old Testament text, um, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. This is where we see this interesting um, passage here from Genesis where Abraham, um, well, at this point, his name is Abram. Uh, God has not uh, changed his name yet to Abraham, but uh, his name is Abram, uh, and he says, you know, he's asking God, he said, oh, Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And this is the key verse here. This, you know, verse number, Genesis 15, verse six. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the Lord, Abraham believed the promises of the Lord. And that is quoted by Paul in uh, Romans chapter four and Galatians chapter three. You see that he quotes this, you know, that Abraham believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That all children of Abraham are not children of Abraham by the flesh, like the rich man thought that he was, but are children of Abraham according to the faith, right? Those who believe the Lord, who believe the promises of the Lord, that that he will grant them salvation by his great work, they are the ones who are declared righteous, especially, you know, and it's, it's those now who believe that who believe the Lord and his promises of salvation through the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, that faith, right, the faith of, of Abraham, trusting in the Lord and what he has told you, that is counted to you as righteousness, that we do not have to do anything for our salvation. We believe what God has done for us and and the salvation that he has won for us is conferred to us, right? Now, to finish this off, let's look at our epistle text from uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Uh, And I'll just read this out because it's it's worth reading. Uh, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. Sorry, must also love his brother. Let me clarify that. Must also, so whoever loves God must also love his brother, right? Um, and this is clearly a advo- advocating for loving your fellow Christians, right? Um, we are called to show love to our neighbor, regardless of whether they're a Christian or not. But if we can't love and show love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then how can we be expected to show love to our neighbor who's not a brother or sister in Christ, right? That's kind of the idea here. And we can understand this through um, the fact that the rich man knew who Lazarus was, probably because Lazarus was also Jewish. He was also a Jew, probably. I mean, with a name like that, that is that is a Jewish name. It's not 
a coincidence that he knew him. Possibly he knew exactly who he was, so he had an extra obligation to love his brother, right? To show God's mercy, even according to the Old Testament. You can't just say that, you know, oh, well, he lived in the Old Covenant and that's that's why he could just pass by him. No, God's covenant accounted for these things. The, the covenant on Sinai especially accounted for those who were uh, destitute and beggars and things like that, but this rich man didn't care. He did not show love to his brother. And he did this out of unbelief, right? He thought that he could just get away with whatever he wanted, feasting sumptuously and letting others die, even though he could do something about it. That's not to say that, you know, um, we in America, because we are able to eat our fill on things, yet other people in the world are starving and we don't, you know, we don't do anything about it. It's not that we are actively contributing to their starvation. I mean, you can send things over. It's getting into some, some, some issues there about, you know, whether we hasten death or anyways, I don't want to get into all that. But I will say this, that if there's somebody... This is to clarify it all. If there's somebody outside your doorstep, in your town, someone that you drive by all the time that you know is suffering, that that you know is um, destitute and begging for money or food or something like that, if you drive by them and don't actively help them, then you're actively hurting them in a way. You're not showing your love to them as you should, as you ought to. Now, we have to be careful with people who are, you know, grifters or something like that, but there's no harm in actually being charitable towards people. Um, we're called to do that for people. And when we see this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, we see there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. That God is love, right? Love is an action. God's love is shown through the suffering and bitter, the bitter sufferings and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That his suffering for us is for our salvation. His suffering and his death and his, and his pouring out of his blood for us is the perfection of love, right? Perfect love, that perfect love shown on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The only thing that we have to fear ultimately in this world is death, and eternal death and damnation. If we fear those things, then we have not been perfected in that perfect love that Christ shows on the cross. And we will be struggling with that, I would imagine, for all of our lives. Uh, that we struggle with the understanding of, you know, there will be times where we say, does God really love me? Am I really saved? And we can point to the things that God has done for us, not that we do for him, but that God has done for us by carrying us uh, to the font, by feeding us with his body and blood, by teaching us with his very word. And he shows his love in these ways as well, right? And because he loves us first, we can now love. It's imperfect, but it is love shown through the light of Christ, right? And um, with that, I'll leave that there. We're, you know, going on pretty long here. But um, there's a lot here. Like I said in the very beginning, these texts are, they're a little disjointed. You got to kind of work a little bit to make them work together. But there is a, there is a theme here. There is a, a thread that we can follow here. This, this kind of great reversal, how, um, how God, while he may bless someone materially in this world, that material wealth, the, uh, the way that God's, the, the way that God blesses us materially is not necessarily an indication of spiritual wealth, that we 
are even more susceptible, I'd say. If we have a lot of material wealth, we are in more danger of uh, spiritual poverty. Um, that if we do not understand where God, where our material wealth comes from, and that it is not only for our good, but for our neighbor's good as well. If we don't understand these things, we are in danger of really missing the point and not understanding that we have been placed here to love our neighbor and especially our brother and sisters and brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so that is pretty much it for this Sunday. I'm usually trying to end this with some sort of pertinent point, but that's that's pretty much it, that we should not be so concerned with how we look to the world. The world seeks for our um, placation. Um, the world seeks for us to bow down to it, to follow along with it, to, um, yeah, to follow its lead. But we as Christians ought to understand that every good and perfect thing comes from God. And it begins with salvation. And it ends in eternal bliss and happiness in heaven, trusting that God works all things according to his good and perfect will. Even though we don't understand it, we don't understand why um, uh, certain things happen, we don't understand uh, fully um, why it is that some reject and why it is that some believe. That is the mystery of faith. But we trust that God, in his mercy, in his judgment, that is perfect and good, that he is the one who um, it's really in his hands. And we just have to trust him. And we need to know that we can trust his word to provide the salvation that he promises through faith. With all this, um, I pray that you would have a blessed Sunday tomorrow. Um, I pray that God's word would dwell in you richly and that you would benefit greatly for this hearing the, uh, hearing the word of God that would call you to repentance and hearing the word of God that would ultimately grant you knowledge of salvation so that you would be at peace. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.